We'll be reading our scripture this morning from Romans 8, 31 through 39. I think it'll be on the screens. It's in your handout if not, uh, but read with me the word of the Lord. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Kyle and team. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you on this first Sunday of the approaching fall season and just seeing the natural changes in the world around us, the leaves falling, the air finally becoming cooler. Father, we're reminded that you are intricately involved in your creation as far above us and beyond us and altogether different as you are, you are still personally involved in the world around us in our own lives. Father, it's your hand that changes the seasons. It's your hand that waters the grass and the valleys, that brings change on all parts of our globe in its different temperatures and varying seasons depending on where on the earth one is located. And even more so, you are involved in our own personal lives. We don't pause to think about what you're doing often enough. But what a joy that you are so closely involved, that you care so much for us who don't deserve your love, let alone your intention. You're a good God for being near to us. Father, we rejoice in the safe return of the Greece team. Father, we're thankful that we could send some of our own to minister to many of the missionary families and their children as they gathered. Father, we pray for those who are, well, really all of them, recovering from jet lag uh, and even some from a late sickness as well. We think of even our pastor, Jerry, uh, who's dealing with sickness this morning. We ask that you would bring rest and comfort to him as well as the other uh, teammates who have returned and who are just getting back to the Eastern time zone. Father, we're grateful for the church plants in our areas, some of the churches that we have partnered with and the new works that they have begun. 
I think of Morningside Baptist Church in downtown Atlanta and Christian and the ministry there. Uh, and Antioch Church over in the Brazelton area with Tyler. And then Trinity Church, which is hoping to launch even later this year, early next, and Zach. I'm just reminded that you have purpose to use your church to spread your gospel, to save souls, and that not even the gates of hell will overcome it. And what an encouragement to us that it's not left to us alone. It does not fall fully on Milton Community Church to be your witness. We are one of many faithful witnesses in North Georgia, and we pray for more. We know that the harvest is great, and I ask that you would raise up even more workers to plant churches, to be missionaries overseas, to go and work with tribes and peoples that are completely closed off to the gospel. Even from this congregation, would you do that? Father, I pray for our many members, friends and family who are even traveling this weekend. Give them safety in their travels. What a joy that we can come before you and cast even our simplest, our most mundane cares and needs before you and that you joyfully delight in answering our requests. So we commit ourselves to you. We ask that you would open our eyes, our hearts, our ears to the hearing of your word that we would understand your gospel more clearly, that it would change us more deeply, and that it would influence our lives even in the days, the weeks to come. We pray in your name, amen. Well, good morning again, church. I'm back, and uh, thankfully, this morning's sermon isn't called The Sons of God Strike Back or Return of the Nephilim. Uh, And to his credit, Jerry made extra sure (laughs) that I knew I didn't have to preach in Genesis this week, Uh, and I do love the book of Genesis, just so it's on the record. Uh, But this morning, we are in Romans, so if you haven't already turned there, uh, please turn with me to Romans chapter 8 as we get started. We'll be looking mostly at verses 31 through 39, as Kyle just read. So our family has been with you all here at Bilton Community Church for going on five months now. Feels shorter and longer at the same time. I've heard so many stories and testimonies about God's faithfulness to individuals, to families, and to your church families. If you've been coming to Milton Community Church within the last year, like myself, uh, you may or may not have heard about the merger that took place between Crabapple First Baptist Church and Grace Church. And so many of you from those wonderful churches have had long and significant histories from your experiences as members there. And I know also that many of you are probably grieving, even mourning, just the, the change the changes of culture, of vision, of classrooms and buildings, and even a new name, among other things. And those are very significant things. There's no doubt. I mean, I truly believe the memories, the experience that you all bring to the table here is part of what makes this church so unique and wonderful. And I believe there's an opportunity for God to strengthen this church, our church, because of the rich history that is shared among us. 
And there's also been, on my end, a lot of talk and conversation about philosophies, about strategies, about methods and best practices. And I want you to know those things are very important, and I think they are very important. But I also want you to know that as much as I care about those things, I actually care more about our foundation, about first things, our motivation. If we're going to do anything as a church, what matters first and foremost is the why that we do it. The why that we do it. We can have the best philosophies, the best strategies, practices, but if our foundation is off, we'll be entirely unsuccessful. But if we have a sure foundation, even mediocre philosophies, mediocre practices and efforts will bear fruit for generations to come. Or to put it a different way, I don't believe God will bless us simply for our good efforts. I believe God will bless our efforts because of our good faith. Which brings us to our text this morning in Romans chapter 8. I feel the need for the reminder, even if for my own soul this morning, to be reminded that the most critical thing in my life, in my ministry, in my pursuits, is the everlasting love of God for my soul. The everlasting love of God for my soul. His love for me as a person. Not his love for my achievements, for my works, or even for my good sacrifices. His love for me as a person. Because one day, I will, just like the rest of you, find myself very close to dying, unless it creeps up on me suddenly, And the only thing that I will be able to hold on to, the only thing that I will truly be able to grasp is God's love for me. That's it. When it's all said and done, that's all any of us will have left. That has to be and can only be our only hope in this life. So you're taking notes this morning. I've got four points for us. Number one is this, God's complete authority. God's complete authority. We're going to focus primarily on verses 31 through 39 in Romans 8, but for better or worse, we're dropping in on a transition for Paul in between some significant arguments. Verse 31, he says, what then shall we say to these things? So we're going to take a moment to review just some of the key insights that we need to arm ourselves in order to mine the riches of our text more deeply. I think if we want God's word to penetrate our hearts, it's helpful to know why these words are important. So quickly looking back at Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. It is the way that the Jews were saved, It is the way that the Gentiles are saved. The salvation that was previously exclusive to the people of Israel and anyone who happened to come into interaction with them and could be blessed by their presence is now open and available to the entire planet. Anyone in the world, it's a a one-size-fits-all salvation. If you are saved, you have been saved by this gospel. There's only one. 
And the gospel is simply this, that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a righteously perfect life so that he could be a perfect sacrifice, taking our sin and our suffering in his death. And then God raised him on the third day, declaring the, the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf and therefore inviting all who would repent and believe in the name of Jesus to be counted as heirs to God's kingdom. And we see again in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And praise God that Paul didn't stop there, right? The verse continues in 324. All have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. All have sinned. All have fallen short. Even as Christians today, we at one time were counted among those who had fallen short. But through the gospel, God has justified us as a gift that by grace we might now receive faith. And what does that faith look like? Romans 4.18 brings us back to Genesis where we're gonna be in just a matter of weeks as we are following Abraham and Sarah and the promise. 4.18 says this, in hope he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in the faith when he considered his own body which, is his, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, which is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness." Abraham had every, every reason to doubt. I mean, it's ridiculous. Looking at his own body, knowing his wife, Sarah, he had no earthly reason to take God seriously. None at all. And yet faith grew strong in him as he trusted in the unseen promise of God. So now, today, just as it was for Abraham, Christians are people of faith. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith is what justifies us before God. It's what makes us right before him. It makes us innocent in his eyes, and it makes us righteous. And if faith makes us right before God, we need to be reminded of the object of our faith. What is the object of our faith? Romans 6, 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and life on our behalf, is the object of our faith. That's what we look to. We trust and believe that we worship a risen Savior. He tasted death. 
and was made alive on the third day, therefore making us alive through faith. And not only are we alive to God, we are also finally dead to the law. We no longer need to strive for perfect obedience, which was the standard, right? We were never capable of it. Romans 7, 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. The law condemns us. I mean, it rightfully reveals our sin to us. If you're speeding down the freeway, right? If you're going 90, 85, as soon as you see or ignore that speed limit sign that says 70 or even worse, 55, right? You've officially broken the law. You can't feign ignorance. When that police officer pulls you over, you've got no excuse. There's nothing you can say because there are posted signs every so, every so many miles that tell you what the speed limit is. So as soon as you break it and the cop feel, pulls you over, all you can do is pray, right? Pray and confess. Or if you have little kids, roll that back window down so they can say hello, right? You know, how's it going, officer? I've never done that, just so you know. But that's how it is. The law has been posted, and so now we are guilty of it just by its simple existence. It wasn't personal. It doesn't say, hey, you, in that green Chevy going so fast. It's completely objective to anyone who would break this speed limit. You could now be fined or go to jail. It doesn't matter what your name is or what car you're driving. But in Christ, we are no longer bound by the law. We are bound to God's grace and mercy in us through faith. So we don't submit to a rule, to a sign, to a law. Now we actually submit to a person. We submit to a relationship with Jesus himself. And finally, our last summarizing verse, Romans 8, chapter 1. The new reality for everyone who would put their faith in Jesus. Paul says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And the law could never bring life. It could never bring redemption because it was an instrument specifically and only of condemnation. It's meant to point out your error It's not meant to lead you to repentance. It's not led to fix you or restore you, only to give blame. But now in the spirit, God has removed the law, the bondage of it from our lives and has freed us to walk in the life of the spirit. And these are just a few of the significant things that Paul is using, excuse me, as a springboard to dive into our text this morning. Which brings us to point number two. Number one was God's complete authority. Number two, in verses 31 through 34, we'll see the proof of Jesus' power. 
Verse one says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? And here Paul offers one of the most significant uh, rhetorical questions in the whole Bible, right? If God is for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who? All the things we just talked about, our righteousness by faith, granted by Jesus' death, all of these things are evidence that prove God is for us. He is for his children, for his sheep, for his people. I have to confess, I've often struggled with the belief that God is for me. It just feels, it feels weird, to, almost selfish to say, I'd rather be on God's side than him be on mine. Would God be so caring that he would be for me personally? I mean, he doesn't take sides, right? Apparently, Romans 8, he does. He does. He is for us. And I need this passage to remind me that God is for me. And Paul's not making this statement in a vacuum. He knows that we struggle with fear and doubt. He's not dismissing your, your trials, your frustrations, your life difficulties. He's not dismissing any of that. He's talking about the goodness and the significance of Jesus' power and love. They're just incomparable. He offers evidence here to prove that our salvation is completely secure. And we'll notice a contrast from Romans 8.32 to Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, which will be at in truly just a few weeks. And sorry, Jerry, but to completely steal your thunder, what makes the sacrifice of Isaac a good story? Why are we okay reading the sacrifice of Isaac? Something so potentially tragic and devastating, we can read with no problem because we know what happens, right? God stays the hand of Abraham with knife midair and provides another sacrifice. And in the end, God knows, Abraham, you trusted me, you believed me, I will fulfill my promise to you. It's a happy ending, right? Isaac lives, the ram shows up, they have a good sacrifice, the promise continues. But let's really step back and think about that for a moment. I mean, how would we view the Bible? How would we view God if he had allowed Abraham to kill Isaac? On the one hand, we know Abraham had the faith to do it, right? He was willing. That's why God counted it towards him as righteousness. And we believe that God would have been faithful to provide another heir, right? Another promise. But I think our view is, is skewed because we know what happens. We know that Isaac's life was spared. On the other hand, let's say Abraham did kill Isaac. 
Genesis 22 would be one of the most difficult passages in the whole Bible. I think the Nephilim are bad. Try preaching that. Oh my goodness. How on earth do we explain to the watching world that, yeah, God had the patriarch, patriarch Abraham sacrifice his only son? That's crazy. It would have been a tragedy. And yet, when it comes to the death of Jesus, I think, myself included, we are incredibly emotionally inconsistent. We recoil at the thought of Isaac dying, and yet we don't view the death of Jesus with the same significance. We say, how wonderful, praise the Lord, God spared Isaac, and yes, of course, Jesus had to die. He had to die. How else would we be saved? We need to understand that the life of Jesus was just as valuable as Isaac's life. It's just as crazy that God would kill his son as it would have been for Abraham to actually kill Isaac. And his life, Jesus's, is even more valuable. We're talking about the son of God. And yet I know, myself included, it's easy to say, well, yeah, Jesus died for me. He had to. It's not a big deal. It's a big deal. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus did not consider his own life something to be held onto, something to be grasped. And the pain of the father in turning his back on Jesus on the cross was real. He wasn't apathetic. So of course, in Romans 8, as Paul highlights, of course, God will graciously give us all things. Even when we think that the all things are, are weightier than Jesus' death, we doubt and we struggle because well, we haven't received all things. All things are important to us. They're a big deal, right? But all things are easy. It's nothing for a God who has already paid the highest price. One author put it this way. I thought it was so helpful. He said, if you're going to spend hundreds and even thousands of dollars today, unfortunately, to go bring your family to Disney World, you put all that money down, make the reservations, get the hotels, the restaurants, all that stuff. If you're a planner, if not, you spend it last minute, but either way, you're spending it. And you show up and you find out the parking costs 50 bucks. What do you do? You're not turning around. You already put the money down. You already invested. Your wife's not going to let you just go home. You already spent all that money for your kids to go to Disney World. And here's what he says. He says, God has already paid so much in Jesus, of course he's going to pay for your parking. All things for us, it's just, it's our parking. God's going to pay for it. Of course he's going to graciously give it. He's already paid the higher, more significant cost and investment. And that's the proof that we can believe he will give us all things. It's just change in the bucket for God to give us all things. And our hope comes from seeing at the precious cost of the life of Jesus. He didn't give a little. He gave everything. He gave everything, much, much more than our everything that we could bring what would it look like in our lives if we truly believed that God gave everything? No one can bring a charge against us. No one can condemn us. 
Jesus' sacrifice is perfect. God the Father is the heavenly judge, and even though the devil would accuse us, and the world as well, even our sinful hearts could accuse us of sin, but God Almighty does not and will not in Christ ever accuse us. Jesus has done the work and even now intercedes for us, making sure that as God's children, our hope and our future inheritance are forever secure. Which brings us to the empty threats of life. The third point in verses 35 to 36, simply the empty threats of life. Verse 35 continues, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Jesus has he's died for us. He has given the most costly thing So what now makes us think that anything can stand in his way from getting to us? Is anything more powerful than the death of Christ? You'll notice that Paul, he's experienced all of these realities up until now, except for the sword, which he would go on to face in Rome. He's not writing from the hypothetical. He's writing from true, genuine experience with real and significant pains, trials, and tribulations and still says, none of that matters. And you know, I think it's a great tragedy that so many Christians in the West often feel that God is distant. We often feel, well, God, I don't feel close to him. I feel spiritually dry. And I'm convinced that at least a small part of that, a small reason for their despair is that we do not know genuine need or suffering. We don't. We actually know great comfort. We go to great lengths to avoid discomfort and to avoid potential suffering. We truly have everything we need and most of what we want. Who else can say that? And perhaps it's not so much that God's love feels so distant for so many, but that our earthly treasures and comforts often fail to satisfy. Of course, God's love would feel distant when we, when I, have been so busy loving other things. And Paul drives his point home, quoting Psalm 44 essentially saying they are facing death all day, every day, 24-7. I mean, to wake up thinking this might be it. This might be the last day. This may be the day that the Lord brings me home. Is this the last day that I can make count for the kingdom? And there may come a time in the near or very near future when this becomes a reality for us in the West as well just as it presently is in persecuted countries that are closed off to Christianity. And this text is a humbling 
But critical reminder, I think, for us today to check our earthly comforts at the door. They're just not worth it. I mean, I'm more and more convinced that one day I'll probably face jail time for my faith. If I live long enough, it'll probably happen. I I didn't say that my kids will face it. Who knows what they'll face? I think in my lifetime, persecution is coming. We can't wait until suffering hits us to put our hope in the love of Christ. You don't want to find yourself drowning when the floor gives way. You want to find yourself steady and secure on the rock of Christ, which will never be moved. Which finally, bring us to our last point in verses 37 through 39. Simply nothing can separate us from God's love. Verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. These verses build clearly on verses 35 to 36. There is nothing, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, not death, not life. Life won't separate us with all its suffering, its anxieties, its worries. Nothing in life can separate us from the love of God. Nothing in the present, nothing in the future. We could add nothing in the past, right? Not supernatural powers. Some translations say angels, they demons. No rulers, nothing in heaven, nothing in hell, nothing anywhere, anywhere in all of the created and supernatural universe will be able to separate us from the love of God. And that's an incredible list that could easily terrify any person. It's crazy. They are real, they're significant threats, but they actually have no power. They have no power over God, which means they have no power over us. Apart from God, they would have all the power in the world. We would be nothing compared to any one of these items on this list. But these things are subject to God. He rules over each and every one. So they cannot keep God, who is their owner, their ruler, apart from us. Consider the words of David in Psalm 139. He says, where shall I go from your spirit, from the spirit of God? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. God owns the heavens. He owns Sheol. He owns the uttermost parts of the sea, everything. 
Everything that terrifies, that worries, that concerns, everything that aggravates us, God has complete authority over him, over those things. And God is more than the conqueror, as the supreme owner. He is the author and sustainer. And so we also, as Paul said, are more than conquerors. We don't just find victory over these things through God. We find that we are more than victorious because all of these things, as terrifying as they are to us, God actually uses for our good. He uses all of those things to make us more like Christ. He uses all of those things to work out his purposes in the world. So not only are we victorious over them, but they actually make us more victorious, more than conquerors. So even if you lose for a moment, you get better, and therefore you win, which means you never really lost in the truest sense, right? So I ask you this morning, is there anything that has your heart more than the love of Jesus? There's always something, there's a struggle for each of us. Even if the first thing is Jesus, there's always a second thing. And as Christians, the Christian life is always doing a heart check and saying, has my second, has my third, my fourth, or my fifth thing, have any of those things become the number one thing? Because they can. But friends, God doesn't love us because of anything we can do no matter how well we do it. There's no way to earn his love. He's not impressed by our ministries, by our worship, by anything excellent that I or you can do for him. He's not impressed by it. And it has nothing to do with our sacrifices for him. It has everything to do with his sacrifice for us. We can't do anything, but he has done everything. And I'm convinced, which is part of why we're here, that this church will do many wonderful things, just as the two churches did previously many wonderful things. But I'm also convinced, simply just for the fact that I'm involved, we'll do some mediocre things. Not on purpose, but just because we are, we're human. That's what happens. And that's okay, because God doesn't call for us to bring the very best. He calls for us to live in his love, to be motivated by what he has done, and in return, offer that same love to one another. May we be a people who are truly captivated by God's great love for us. This morning, we're going to participate as a church family in the Lord's Supper. Just as Romans 8 reminds us, it's not about what we can do for God, but what he has done for us. We must come before the table with humility and open hearts. Indeed, when we come to the table before us to receive the elements, we come with open hands. Why do we come with open hands? It's a simple and profound answer. We must come to the table with open hands so that we can receive the bread, which symbolizes Jesus' body for us. We must come with open hands so that we can receive the juice, 
which symbolizes Christ's blood that was shed for us. We can't take the elements if our hands are full, right? If you come up with your phone and wall in your hands, you're not going to have room, literally, to carry the bread and the juice. They have to be empty. They have to be open to receive the love of God. And this is one of the primary ways that churches remember his great love for us, that he sent his only son to live a holy life, to suffer and to die for our sin. All of these years later, every sin you've committed until now, every sin you'll commit today, every sin for the rest of your life, Jesus had with him on the cross. And that is the way that God has shown his great love for us. This meal is open to each of our members. If you're visiting with us today, if you've been baptized as a believer, if you are trusting in Jesus and you're a member in good standing at a church that faithfully preaches the gospel of the Bible, we would welcome you to participate with us. In a moment, I'll pray And then we are all invited to come forward to the table to receive the elements as we sing a communion hymn together. And after we've all received them and gone to our seats and the singing is complete, Nathan will come forward to lead us in taking the bread and juice together. Let's pray. God in heaven, it is a mystery to us that you would plan the gospel, that you would work out the love of yourself and of your spirit and of Jesus in this way. Who would have ever, who would have ever thought of this strategy to redeem humanity? It is altogether above us and beyond us, and yet we are grateful that you have revealed it to us. We don't even deserve to know. We don't deserve to know the mind of God. We don't deserve to know the salvation of Jesus, and yet you freely give it in love and compassion. I pray for any hard hearts this morning, any of those who are struggling with doubt and anxiety, feeling the weight of school, of work, of illness, of broken relationships. Father, would you remind the broken heart that you can work all things together for the good of those who believe in you. Would we be a people who are actively seeking out relationships with one another so that we can be a steady and consistent help and encouragement for we will all face trials and tribulations We will all face difficulties. And I ask for this church in particular that you would make us people who are ready to lean wholly and completely on your love. When the floor is removed, when all of our securities have fled, when nothing in life lives up to the hype that we want it to be, would we be a people who are satisfied, who are content with your love and your love alone? Would you make this so in our lives by your Holy Spirit? We pray in your name, amen.